So a lot of you are asking, what's going to be that final mountain, right? What do we look at? And I'll tell you, this is really hard because there's a lot of good mountains, right? Mount Nebo would be fascinating and the end of Moses' story. And that, that's probably our closest um, parallel to where, where we are and where we stand looking into heaven and Moses looking into the promised land. That's neat. Uh, or the Mount of Transfiguration would be kind of fascinating, wouldn't it? But Jesus, how he revealed himself and Moses and Elijah. Um, I was tugged between this and Mount Moriah where Abraham took his son uh, up to the top. And the parallel between Abraham and Isaac and Jesus and the Son of God. There, there's, there's just a lot there. There's, You know, we can do this. Sean's going to have to have a preaching series after we're done about the rest of the mountains we need to cover. Because <laughs> there's, there's a lot you can talk about. Uh, but I wanted to take us to Sinai uh, today. And uh, I think we'll see. We're, we're going to get into it a little bit. But you'll see... Uh, before too long, why I believe it's really relevant. Sinai is relevant. And what takes place at Sinai is relevant. <clears throat> I'll go ahead and give a spoiler. We're not going to make it to Mount Zion. You know, there's a neat parallel between Sinai and Zion that's made in Hebrews 12. In fact, I think some of you are going to be doing that here very soon. So we're not going to go there because uh, that's not really the point of today's lesson. I just wanted to go back and to capture what took place at Sinai and why it was important and why it's still important today. Um, I found out yesterday in the announcement before the sermon that this is getting recorded, so we're going to have to behave ourselves. Um, <laughs> <laughs> videotaping. <laughs> so we're, no, no, that's great. I'm glad that there's some of you going to be able to study along with us at another time. But let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into, into where we're going today. <clears throat> Holy and righteous God, we give you thanks and praise and honor and glory. You are our Lord, you are our Redeemer, and our Master. You are the reason we live, and you are the song we sing, and today we are singing your praise. May the things we do, and the way we live, through our time in this study, and all the places we go this day, bring honor and glory to you. Bless our time of study right now, wonderful Father, we pray in Christ's name, amen. amen. Alright, so we're ending with Mount Sinai, uh, the scripture reference didn't get changed over, we're going to be in Exodus 20, if you want to get your Bibles there, we'll look at a couple passages circulating that Exodus 20 section there. Uh, we got a few who weren't with us earlier this week, we're, we're treating this like a class, and so we'll move the story, I'll help move the story along, but we're just going to talk back and forth for a little bit, and see what we can learn about what's taking place at Mount Sinai. The difference between the first two mountains and this one is we don't really know which mountain in the region is Mount Sinai. Oh. Maybe we don't. Can I just do this? <laughs> Should be okay. <laughs> Hang on a second. Maybe can't, can I do this? It was trying to update. Oops, I'm sorry. It's probably the same. Maybe we'll point with power and that's the point. Go ahead. Okay, I'll just, uh, wow. let's see if it goes again. You keep going enough, it does not. Okay, so this is the Sinai region, and unlike Carmel and unlike uh, Ararat, right? I'm not going to get it on the same. Um, we don't really know which mountain was the one that, that Moses went up upon to receive the law of God. But as you do see, and the Sinai wilderness that surrounds this area is one of the most rugged and difficult terrain that exists on the planet. I mean, it's just covered in rocks and in hills. When they wander through the wilderness, you're not talking about the Sahara Desert. You're talking about a really rough terrain that they were 
plowing through, journeying through as God led them through the wilderness. So on one of these ranges, God called Moses up. And we've been looking every time when you go somewhere new, there's always tends to be a historical marker that would say something really important happened here. Let me summarize it to you. And I think a good summary of what took place on Mount Sinai comes from, let me get it here, we're going to be in Nehemiah, it's just coming on the screen, Nehemiah 9, 13 and 14. It says, you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and uh, statutes and a law by Moses your servant. When you think of Mount Sinai and what took took place in Mount Sinai, aside from the, the magnitude of the severity of God in Exodus 19, remember the fire and the smoke and the loud sound, aside from that, when we think about Mount Sinai, we really think about one thing, that, and that's what Nehemiah captures here. We think about the giving of the law. That, that's what we associate with Sinai. Moses went up, and he came back with the law of God. And specifically, it's not all the law. We really don't associate that. Although God did give the extent of the law, all those hundreds of commands, we really think of the Ten. The Ten Commandments, which represented the whole law of God. Uh, in other words, those Ten represented what God wanted for His people, just encapsulated in short form. Uh, the Ten Commandments, there's something timeless about those Ten Commandments. Uh, one author said, the details may have changed, but the principles today remain the same. Uh, the Ten Commandments are a moral compass to the world, pointing them and reminding them of the themes that have echoed through the Scripture. I like one, um, Ted Coppel once said, here, he said, Our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. In its purest form, truth is not a polite tap on the shoulder, it's a howling reproach. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the Ten Suggestions, they are commandments, are, not were. The sheer brilliance of the Ten Commandments is that they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all time. And I thought that's really a really wise way of summarizing it, that God gave these eternal principles on the mountain that were to be with the people of God. We know the covenants have changed, and that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the law system under which uh, we live and govern today. We're talking about principles that God established on the mountains that certainly are true to where we live today. So I want to start here. I want to start with, with what's going on and then weave in our relevance, why this really matters today. It all kind of begins with the understanding that God gave a law. Someone help me. What are some of the first laws God gave? Like, ever? Don't eat of this tree. Okay, don't eat of this tree. Uh, yes. Tend the, tend the garden. Tend to the garden. Right, there's a law. I want you to work. Right, you're going to till the garden. Fill the earth. And then fill the earth. And by implication, subdue it. Right, rule. I want you to rule and reign and fill the earth and scatter and I want you to not eat from this tree. That's kind of the one we remember from that Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. So we kind of got that law. God says, I want you to imitate me in work. I want you to fill this earth. I want you, in many sense, I want you to imitate me and rule. You're going to be over everything as I am over everything. 
but then there's one thing you are not to, to do, to eat or to touch. Uh, one author kind of summarized the law here. He said, God put Adam uh, to the test as he, um, as he said, he says, love me, Adam, by obeying me, and obey me by loving me. Love has been the summary of the law. That's what he saw when he looked at these commandments here. Now, the law of God is designed to bring freedom. Do you remember how James called the law in James 1? The law of liberty. Do you remember that? In the book of James chapter 1 and James chapter 2. Sometimes we, we tend to look at the law of God as this foreboding burden that weighs us down. But that's not really the way we are to see the law. Right? Even here, the law that God gave in Genesis 2 was not a burden. God gave Adam and Eve the freedom to eat from every tree that He created. And this law was designed to keep them from the burden of sin. Right? Can you imagine the scene? Right? Because God gives them the law, and then Satan comes along and says, Did God say you can't eat that tree? Don't you want to eat this tree? Can you imagine if Adam and Eve said, Are you kidding me? Do you see all the trees we can eat? we got apple and papaya and banana. You want us to eat this one? Look at all the trees we have. Why would we want this one when we have the freedom to eat all of these? The law was not intended to be a burden. The psalmist says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought your precepts. The law of God actually is, is liberating. In fact, you remember in Romans 6, that's one of the arguments Paul makes about the law in Romans 6, is the nature of freedom and slavery in terms of our obedience to God. Let me put it on the screen, you can see it here. So, obedience to God's laws results in freedom. That's what he says in Romans 6 and verse 22. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome of eternal life. In other words, it's only by submitting ourselves as a slave to God we will really taste true freedom. But, here's the catch. Liberation from God's law. When we choose to go our own way saying, ah, I don't want to be under that burden, it always results in slavery. Because he makes the argument a little later on, in verse 20 and 21, right? For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. In other words, you are a slave to whomever you obey. One author says it this way. He said, the first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but its master. Isn't that it? We are going to serve someone. We will obey someone. Either it is Jesus, through which comes immense freedom, or it's going to be of sin. Sin and the devil, and, and so forth. So let me ask you this. I'm going to start unveiling a few things. When you look at the purpose of that God intended through His law, one of which was to reveal God through the people, how do you see God through His law? What do we learn about God through His law? He loves us. He loves us. It's good. How do you see that? How do you see God's love through, through His law? His law, is, if, if we obey His law, we'll be happier and we'll have a better life. And if we don't, we're going to be miserable and, and we're going to worry about things and... and uh, so his law is designed to bring about the best life possible, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. I think we'll get that in just a moment, because we don't always see it that way, right? The perfect right. illustration is a parent <laughs> with a child, right? Because in every child's dream, eating cake and cookies all day long, and staying up through the wee hours of the night, and dressing however, that would be immense freedom, and that would be the most miserable life possible. There's a reason when we say, only one cookie right now. Because it was up to them, they said, I want to eat all 42 cookies right this minute. It comes with a lot of pain. There's some things that God understands about a good life 
and then we would listen and follow it for it's for our good, for our best. Good. What else? What else do we learn about God? Uh, straightforward. In other words, if we break His rules, there are consequences. Okay, so we learn about the law of consequences, right? Consequences to our actions, and so God is. We might say that there's a fairness to God or justice to God, even a logical consequence to God. That if you follow a certain path, it comes with certain consequences. That's good. God brings order to us. Okay. The lack of chaos, yes. anarchy. None of us want that. That's right. We want the order and and uh, things to be safe for us. God brings that to us through His law. It's good for us. Yes. Think about that even in creation, right? It, there was so much order in what God made. He makes the habitats, day one, two, and three, but then He puts each of the things which will inhabit those places, those habitats, the fish and the birds, and then the stars and, and the planets, and then man and, and, and creeping, creeping things. There's an order to creation which shows that God is not a God of chaos, right? Things are made in their place for a reason. John? God is holy. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one of the key things. We see the holiness of God when we consider His moral standard. What do we What do we mean by that? When we say God is holy, we like that. We hear it a lot. What do we mean by that? Can we get a good a good understanding today? When we say God is holy, what are we saying when we say that? Pure. He's pure. Definitely, it definitely uh, shows us his purity. That's what we mean when we say God is holy. It's a separation from being unholy. I know that sounds simplistic. <laughs> But, but it is. Yes. No, you're right. It is that separation, sanctified, being separated from all that which is unholy. When we look at things unholy and, and look at the grim, grisly uh, reality of it, we don't want that. Yeah. We want to be holy. That's exactly right. And that's one of the key definitions of holiness is a distinction. Right. There's a distinction made, both in quality and in purpose. So on that one. Yeah. I think it just... And how it applies to ourselves or myself is that it's the way that it's talked about that there's be no deceit found in Jesus's mouth. Mm -hmm. Like he embodied the spirit and and like knowing that there's truth and there's something that's not true. So the holiness is it, I mean that's like it's such a it's a, it's only a four letter word, but it's so much more like powerful. It is a pregnant it, thought. There's so much yeah. to it there that's wrapped in there. Yes, man. His law shows his love. It definitely shows his love, his love for his people, his love for life, his love for what is good. You see all that wrapped up in God. John, remember, this is such an old-fashioned thing to today's times, but when, when someone got married years ago, one of the first gifts you were given were some fine china. You remember that? Like, no one does that today. Fine china is the paper dishes that go in the trash. That's a really good gift today. So there used to be time you would have that fine china. But like you never used it. Do you remember that? My mother's threatened upon the pain of death, don't touch the fine china. Because it would only come out with special guests. So you had the regular stuff, right? The regular dishes, chips and hot dogs, we're going all over that and stains. But when a special guest came over, mom gets out the fine china. And it's it's different. It's different in the way that it looks. It's different in the way that it's used. It's set apart for a special purpose. Right? Unlike all other dishes, mm -hmm. God is holy. He is set apart from all that is ordinary. You, you can't even compare God to other things, both in His quality, His purity, as you were talking about, His purpose. Right? That's what holiness is saying, is He is one and only. He is special. He is set apart. That's really good. Okay, let's go on. Let me. I got a couple passages here from Leviticus 11.44. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am holy. 
and you shall not make yourselves unclean with any of these swarming things that swarm on the earth. You get the idea. That's one of the things that God says. My law is showing you who I am, and they're designed to help you be as I am. Also from Deuteronomy 5, as you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice from the midst of the fire, and we have seen today that God speaks with man, yet He lives. What to do? The law shows God to the people. When you see the law, you see a reflection of the lawgiver. You think about our laws in America. They reflect the heart of the men who give them. The law of God reflects the heart of the one who gave it. Okay? So, the law of God also was to reveal man's sinfulness. In what way do we see ourselves through the law of God? We see God, but what do we see about ourselves? Well, at least what should we see about ourselves? <laughs> Unholiness. <laughs> Nothing good. Pro probably not, right? I mean, we can definitely go to the bed. And, and it's pure form. What do we see about ourselves when we look at the law of God? What should we How be seeing? Maybe our holiness right now, our, our sense of holiness. These are, these are temptations for yeah. us. I mean, when I look at this, sometimes you want to kill somebody. <laughs> you know, I mean, let's be honest about it. And it's the law of God that restrains us from things at times. It would just be, they, they, a lot of these are temptations. That's exactly and if it's not for God's law, maybe we would do these things. Well, that's exactly right. First of all, that's your preacher. <laughs> I hear a lot of prayer, so careful on Sunday. That's right. No, no, that's exactly right. What he is walking through is the nature of man, right? These walls are right where we live. That's what we struggle with, right? Hate and envy and lust and covetousness, which a lot of that is wrapped up in pride or selfishness. It makes right? us feel unworthy. At right. least it does me. Well, is that uh, a bad thing? No. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think in some sense, that ought to be something really humbling, right? It is, yeah. That You know, I was just thinking about it yesterday afternoon. I was nearly about halfway asleep, I suppose. But anyway, I was thinking about what you said about God and where He is and what He does. And I thought, that same God loves me. And He knows where I am and what I'm doing. And He loves me anyhow. And it, it makes me feel very humble and unworthy, but but so happy. Amen. Amen. Isn't that an amazing thought? That God. Yeah. So high and above us, still uh, loves us. Yeah. So that part of the law, as we're just talking about here, it reveals it reveals where we are. It reveals our struggle. It reveals uh, our standing before the Lord today. Right? Romans seven kind of points about that. Well, shall we say then, as the law of sin may never be, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin. And in some sense, to Sean's point there, I wouldn't really know about the nature of my desires and the meeting them out had God not set the boundaries and showed me right from wrong. Or the wrong way of handling the things I want versus God's higher way of living and expectations. I wouldn't have known it if it were not for the law. For a while, I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Right? I mean, I just want you what you want, but God puts a label on that and helps me see, oh, that's not natural, that's not right, that's sin. Therefore, in verse 13, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. And in order that I may be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. What does it do? It shows me what's wrong. It shows me God's expectations. God sets the clear boundaries as was made before. God makes it clear. <coughs> right? What is wrong? 
what is natural, what is sin. Brother. I find it really interesting that God made us yeah. in His image. Think how fearfully and wonderfully we're made. That's right. So like we said yesterday, Jeremiah 10, 23. That's right. He made us walking people, but without something. That's he right. left something out. Yes. He left this out. There you go. And now he wants us to know. Hey, let's, let's go right there. You're, you're, you're one step ahead of me, all right? Because it's obvious we need some direction, right? Jeremiah 10, 23, it's not within a man to direct his own steps. God made us as a people who need to be led. He made us as sheep in need of a shepherd. We're not following our own moral compass. God gave us the standard to the law, direction. God gave us guidance as to how to live a good life. Right? I think we made the point a minute ago. Yeah, passage like Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. And now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God, your Father, is giving to you. In other words, listen to me and you're going to be blessed. And that's really important. This is really important for us as parents and grandparents to start really early with our children. We work it from mom and dad's perspective. The reason we're telling you these things, the reason we have curfews and bedtimes and rules and expectations is because we love you. Because we want you to be safe. We impress it upon them. I want you to listen to me in the little things. Like, go get your jammies on. Like, go brush your teeth. Like, stop beating up your brother. Right? <laughs> I want you to listen to me on the little things. Because when it comes to the big things, like, stop, there's a car coming. Or someone is dangerous, stay by me. I want you to trust me in the little things so you'll trust me in the big things. Mm -hmm. And that's what Moses tried so desperately. You can feel it. If you know the Bible story, you feel the pain of a parent like Moses who is saying to the children of God, listen, his law is not bad. Right? So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. What's he saying? These laws are for your good. Right? God gave it so you're going to live, you know, live a good life. The best life. The best life possible. And then, I'm curious about this one. What would you say about this? The law was given to prepare people for Christ. And Paul makes that point in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Maybe he doesn't. Hold on. No, he does. Wait there again. There we go. Galatians 3 and 24. How does the law prepare us for Christ? What do you think? In what ways does the law help us to see Christ and know Christ? I think there we know we... the love comes out. Okay, definitely through the love. And we're going to see that clear and demonstrated through Jesus. Our need is revealed by the law for Christ. We see, so we see that helplessness and we see our need for a Savior. How else do you see Jesus in the law? How else does it help prepare us for Him? He teaches love, and one does not murder one who he loves. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely so. That love, either demonstrated through the Savior being sent, but here's the thing, did Jesus come without laws? Have hey, you read the Sermon on the Mount? <laughs> right? Love and law are not opposite values. Right? We see that love and that law in Jesus. Mitch? In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Um, it took it took a while. Mm -hmm. People were not ready for Jesus two thousand years before He came. That's right. Uh, but when everything was just right, that's right. God sent Him. That's right. Or maybe if you start pairing some of these, God was making a people to get those people ready for the Savior. The law was given to help a people get ready to be a people to receive that Savior. Did it help? 
No. Did people receive them? Well, not for, not for the most part, they did. <laughs> for the most part, they did. It seems like it was few and far between. There were a few. Remember the opening of the, the book yes. of Luke? Yes. Some senior saints mm -hmm. who had been looking for the Savior, but the majority of them who had the law in their hands, in fact, it was the people who had the law and knew the law the most, who were the most to reject Jesus when He came. That very thing that was designed to prepare people for Jesus ended up being a stumbling block when the Savior came in, into the place. And the ones that were looking for it, it helped them to recognize Him when He did come. That's exactly right. That's right, Sean. Part of the problem was the perversion of the law, the yes. adding to the law, the traditions mm -hmm. put on being put on the same level with the law, and Jesus comes onto the scene clarifying, you heard He was saying this. This is what I say. I teach this one with authority. Because I am the embodiment of God's Word. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes, but you, you mentioned Simeon and Anna in the temple. They knew to look for Christ. Yep. They knew to look for a, a, a Savior. Other people could have too. Yeah. It yeah. was as clear to anybody else as it was to Simeon and Anna. It was written a long time ago. Yeah. They had what God told them. Uh -huh. All right, now I want you to keep your markers in Exodus 20, and I want you to go all the way back to the other direction, and I want you to go to that small book of Jude. I want you to see a verse here and to see why perhaps looking at the law, understanding the law, understanding what God gave on Sinai. We'll come back and we'll finish up Sinai a little bit and get a little more context of what's going on here. But I want us to see the immediate relevance to our times. In fact, there, there was an author not long ago who said there may not be a more relevant book, both in the time of when it was written and in our times today than the book of Jude. So, in the book of Jude, a small little book, you get the, the summary in verse 3 of what's going on. Because he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. He says, I wanted to write about salvation and grace and love, but I feel compelled. I feel pushed and moved and motivated that I, I can't do that. I have to, I'm bound by conscience to say something else. And you need to fight for the faith. Okay, here's why. Okay, look at verse 4. This is where it all comes to relevance for us today. This is why he needed to change his message. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There's two things describing these people here in verse 4. What's going on with these people in verse 4? Two things. They're ungodly. Well, they're ungodly. Ungodly runs through this book. In fact, over six times he's going to use that word ungodly <laughs> to describe these people. But he describes it in the end of verse 4 with the two things, the two main stumbling blocks of these people. That they're believing and teaching and running with. Pervert denial. Pervert the, the gospel of Christ. Okay. So they are perverting the grace of God. Some versions will say it this way. They are using the grace of God as a license to sin. What's that mean? Don't forget me and do what I want. Have permission to if God's just going to forgive us, then we can do whatever we want to do. Right? Do you remember the question that Paul asked in Romans 6? Shall we sin so that the grace of God may abound? May it never be. Right? But have you heard of anyone today 
God will forgive me. I mean, what, why are you so focused on laws and rules and commandments? Shouldn't we focus more on God's love and on His grace? I mean, why, why are you talking about authority? Why are you talking about rules? We should be talking about God's love and His mercy. It doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. God is gracious. So number one, they're using the grace of God as a license to sin. But then what's the second thing? Note it's very specific. What's the second thing in the end of verse 4? Denying. 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 But denying what? Jesus. Not just Jesus, though. So it's not that they're denying the existence of Jesus. being the master. It's not even denying that he's the Son of God. It's denying Jesus as their only Lord and Master. Here's the thing. Do you know of anyone today who loves to think of Jesus as a Savior, but despise seeing him as a Lord? Everyone wants a Savior. What's your response to a Savior? Love, <laughs> thankfulness. What's your response to a Lord? Nobody tells me what to do. That's true, what it is. <laughs> but it's submission, obedience, fear, fear, reverence. Do you see that today? Well, there are some who are saying, let's, let's look at Jesus today as the Savior. And let's preach love and grace and mercy. What happens then? when Jesus is not our Lord and we no longer have a fear of God. You know what happens? Right? Do you remember the scene? Moses comes down through God and gives a law. Look at verse 5 of Jude. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. God rescued them. God gave them what they needed to be a people redeemed and following Him. And what was the result? Did they honor Him as their God? No. Did they listen to those laws? And so do you see from back in verse 4, certain people crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand. In essence, what he's saying is, you're going to see a certain pattern a certain way of thinking and attitude that actually existed a long, long time ago. And Jude's going to keep on illustrating that through the Bible story by saying, this is not new. This same kind of heart has been around for a long time, and you're going to see it today too. And the reality is, we see it today too. Right? Do you see how relevant this is then to understand the law of God? We've been talking about love this whole time, haven't we? Love and law, again, are not opposite values. But if we have one without the other, we really don't have the heart of God. Mm -hmm. Alright, what observations do you have about that? And we're going to go back to Exodus 20. Anyone have a thought on that? We just kind of pitched it out there. We've got to know the laws, and some people just don't know it. That's exactly right. right. Can you imagine someone from a different country coming over to America without studying any of our laws? Mm. What is that white sign on the side of the road with some numbers? I don't know. It doesn't seem important. Right? Get you in trouble really quick. That's right. All right, let's go back to Exodus 20. I want you to notice before God gave the Ten Commandments up on the mountain, He gave them some important reasons why. Why it is that He can give these laws and why it is He can expect them to follow them. And so in Exodus 20, I'm going to have it here on the screen. Right up here, Exodus 20, verse 2, or in your own Bibles. Right? This is the why behind the commandments. 
He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Three compelling reasons why it is God can give them the commands and expect them to follow them. First of which, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Alright, a little bit of history and information for us. I'm, I'm going to get you here. I'm going to get your, your, your thoughts about this. A word for Lord. Anyone know what typically when we see that capital L-O-R-D, what word or name we're finding there? Yahweh. Yahweh. Well, so when God gave this name to the people, especially through Moses, it was given with just consonants. Right? Hebrew reads from right to left. Y-H-W-H. Yahweh. You can't pronounce that. Right? They couldn't pronounce it. So, when they had Y-H-W-H for the name of God, they took another name for God, Adonai, and took the vowels of Adonai, blended it in with Y-H-W-H, kind of looks like this, to come up with what we have as, in the Hebrew would be Yehovah, and because of our German ancestors, we pronounce it Jehovah. And so Jehovah was a combination of the consonants of Yahweh and the vowels of Adonai to create this formal name of God. So for instance, and I think this, this is a side point. I think it's an important side point. Just, just, just a little, I'm going to step into a soapbox just for a minute, okay? So we have a word like... Okay. We have a word like hallelujah. Have you heard that before? Have you heard in some strange context before? <clears throat> right? Hallelujah, right? It's a compound word. We have Hallel, right here. Remember, Hebrew reads from right to left. Hallel, which means praise. And then Yah, which is YHWH, Jehovah. And so Hallelujah, actually, this one, Hallelujah is praise the Lord. And so when someone says, the, uh, the Cardinals scored another touchdown. Hallelujah. <laughs> Praise the Lord for this. But don't we hear it in that context all the time? We hear it in songs, in casual conversations. It's using that special name of God. Right? So one of the compelling reasons he says that they are to obey him is because he is the Lord. Lord. So here, here's my question to you. What, in what way is that a motivation an expectation for the people to follow him. What, what is there about the name of God that compels people to obey him and submit to him? What's so special about that name? It means authority. He has authority over us. Okay. He's got authority. It definitely designates his authority. Okay. Why else? He is. It talks about how he is. He is the Lord, right? It talks about his nature. It's not that I was the Lord or will be. I am. I am the Lord consistent. And that's important because for people then and even today, it's not that God said he was uh, against adultery or that adultery was sinful. If he is the Lord, then it is sinful. Mm -hmm. As he stands, his word stands. Good. And he said his name and told Moses, I am. Yeah, I'm right here. We don't have to go through the whole context for our time, but in that Exodus 3, remember, when he is sending Moses to go and to talk to Pharaoh and thus to bring the people out, this is what he built upon. He says, you'll tell them, I am who I am. Verse 14 right there in the middle. Go, uh, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said this, uh, thus you should say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God furthermore said to Moses, thus you should say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, 
um, or Jehovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. You have authority, right? I've given you my name. You're going in my name as a representative. You have his nature, right? I am the Lord. I will always be. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yes, sir. It wasn't open for debate. He declared who he was regardless of whether we believe it or not. Do you notice he didn't leave that to Moses when Moses is saying, ah, I don't know your name, so how am I supposed to go? He didn't say, call me what you want to. Some grandparents do it today, right? You, the kids get to choose what they're going to call me, and then that's your fault when they call you all sorts of strange things, right? No, God didn't say, you, you just got to come up with what you want to call me. God defined, this is how I will be known, and not just now, this is my name for all generations. I am the I am. Yes, sir. Something just reading the script, Old Testament scriptures, I recognized the phrase, so they will know that I am the Lord. It's very common in the Old Testament when when God did things so they would know, like in Egypt, mm -hmm. the plagues, uh, so like with what happened with Elijah mm -hmm. on the mountain. All, all, all kinds of times that Jesus initialized did the same thing. That's right. So you will know that I am the Lord. And that over and over, God said to him, this, this is very important to God. So we will know that He is the Lord. That is an excellent point. I'm going to put two things here, but I want you to, to, to sit with me. We, we've made these points here today for a reminder of the relationship they had with their God, but also a reminder of His nature. Go with me to Leviticus 19. So that section there with, with Moses and God in that discussion, He gives His name to remind them that they have a relationship with their God. I, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's signified by His name. But also, I am is who I am. It's his nature. And so what God says stands as he stands. And Leviticus 19 is a good example of this, how he uses his name and his nature and his covenant to give his laws to the people. In other words, you're going to listen to me and obey me because I am the I am. Right? So notice it's just this uh, Leviticus 19. Look at verse 2. Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy for... I the Lord your God and holy. Right? Look at verse 3. Every one of you shall reference his mother and father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Verse 4. Do not turn from idols or make yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Down to verse 14. You shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Verse 32, you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged. You shall revere your God. I am the Lord. Sixteen times that phrase, I am the Lord, is found in this chapter. It, it is the prompting motivation. You will obey me. You will follow me because I am your Lord. You must be what you must be because I am who I am. That's what he's saying. You must be this way because I am. I am the Lord. Okay, let's go back here. Okay. Why else were they to listen to God and follow Him. Well, He says, I am the Lord, you are God. Right? You are God. That's kind of a rich thought. You know, there's a question asked in Job. I want to ask it to you. Uh, Job asks it this way. Right? Job 34, verse 13. Who gave Him charge over the earth and who laid on Him the whole world? In other words, um, what gives God the right? right? Who put Him on the throne? What gives God the right to tell me how to live my life? Have you heard that before? That sounds so awful, but that's, that's the idea here. Well, well, who gives God the right? Or what gives God the right to tell me how to live my life? 
What's that mean? I have that question up here. What, what, what does that mean, your God? What are we supposed to see from that? What do we understand with that? And, and what does that have to do with us obeying Him? Your God. Go ahead. He's the one and only. He is. He is the He's one and only. The, top, the only one. No one comes before God, right? Because no one put Him on the throne. Right. Right? And there's no one sticking him off. Yes, sir. In this context, God is saying, I am the Lord your God, and uh -huh. I proved it when I brought you out of Egypt. Yes. All the miracles. Yes. Okay. Now we're going to get to the deliverance in just a moment, but you are right, though. It's not just, I am the Lord, the God, I'm your God. I'm your personal God. What else are we supposed to see with that with God? Well, what else do we get? Why does God have a right to command us using that, that title of God? He made the Creator. He made Creator. We get the implication of Creator, the one who made us. Well, in contrast to this time in Exodus, I mean, I mean there is an idea that, you know, you have all these other gods around, uh -huh. whether that's Egyptians or anywhere else, that they all have their gods. And so he's not only being specific, but he's con contrasting. I mean, even from the events of Egypt, it's like, I'm above all of these things that you've seen for generations, and I'm going to continue to show you and educate you on why I'm not only the true God, but I'm your God, and I will be your God, versus how all these other, you know, because we as humans, as beings, we want to serve, like we have to serve something. It's the way God made us. We are. We will worship something. And that's a good point. They've seen a lot of gods. Yeah. Right? Supposed in their time of Egypt, because right? they worship everything, right? The sun, the moon, the river, the cows, Pharaoh. Underneath those words, there's a relationship implied. That it, it's is. not just about serving me, there's a relationship in this. There's a compelling reason why, right? An emotional, relational reason why. Yes, ma'am. God loves us and expects us to love Him. That's right. That's right. Think, think a little further, though, about God, right? We, we get authority in creation, but if for God to be fully God, can, can God make mistakes? No. Not and be God, right? If He's God, He has to be perfect, which means everything that He commands is perfect, right? There's no flaw, right? Do we as parents make mistakes? Oh, boy. <laughs> a lot of grace needed there. I've learned that along the way, right? As I have been gracious to my parents, not that they've needed an abundance of grace, I have certainly hoped that my children will remember the good and forget the mistakes, or be very forgiving about the mistakes. That never happens with God when He commands and says, Oh, I got lost in the wilderness. Hold on, let me get my GPS and see where we're going. That never happens with God. Right? He's perfect. But, again, with this God, and as we're going to get to our last one, it's not just, because let me ask you this, could He be a sovereign king and a creator and perfect, but could he be evil? No. Could he? Yes. God can be evil. He could, right? Could he? He choose to be evil. Right? I don't mean could our God. I'm just meaning in general, could God be evil? He can make choices. Yes. But he's not. Right? He's good. God has done evil. He is not evil. He's allowed evil, right? He's not the author of evil. James, we made that point last night. James says that he's the author of all that's good. And so if he is a perfect God who is a good God, all he does is for our good. And on that basis, he says, I'm your God. Your perfect good source of wisdom and direction. And so let's get to our last one. Because I've got a few things I want to end with you on, on this. Okay. He says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery. Alright, this is important for our context about grace and works and understanding about grace and salvation, where some of us, I think, struggle along the way. Let me ask you, this is what he's saying here. I want you to keep the Ten Commandments so that I will rescue you and deliver you from your troubles. Is that what he's saying here? Okay, what is he saying here? What's the difference? Let me say it again, and you tell me what he's saying here. Is he saying, I want you to follow my commandments, and if you do, I will rescue you and deliver you out of your pit in Egypt, and your, and your slavery in Egypt? He already did. Yes. He already brought, him out. brought you. Okay. Okay. And slavery descends. When we understand the relationship between obedience and grace, when we get those mixed up, we tend to lose our confidence in God's saving grace and in His power. Because sometimes we mix these up and we think, if I do what God wants me to do, and I obey Him perfectly, then God will deliver me and save me. And what ends up is the people who are striving day by day to earn our way to heaven. If I just live a good life, if I attend every service and sing those songs perfectly, then surely at the end of life, when I get to home, I will have earned my way into heaven. And instead, it's the opposite. God, out of His goodness and His grace, offers deliverance, which then prompts and motivates our obedience. Yes. Think of this. Let me get some passages for us to think about. In Romans 5 and verse 8. Get in your mind with me. For God demonstrated His love towards us in that what? While we were obedient because we repented of our sins and came to services. No. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What happened? Right? Even in our kids, God came and He delivered. In fact, I want you to get this next one in your eyes. Go to Titus chapter 2. Notice how it's in Titus 2. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And look at Titus 2, 11 and 12 through the lens of Exodus 20 and verse 2. Let's do it again. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What will follow is, and then here comes the law. The Ten Commandments. Titus 2, beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you hear the relationship there? Here's love and deliverance, which prompts, motivates, provides the expectation that we're going to obey and follow Him. You see it? The compelling motivation is, I have delivered you to follow me. To obey me. Walter said, Grace and law belong together, for grace leads to law. Saving love leads to and excites grateful love expressed in obedience. When I get those mixed up, I keep trying to earn my way home. I keep trying to earn God's love and earn God's favor. God loves us, and He gave Jesus for us. And out of that gift ought to come nothing but a great motivation to love and serve Him. Not to try to earn heaven, but because He's such a loving God has given me far more than what I deserve. I want to just live a life that pleases Him. All right, I want to end with this. Back in Exodus, let's go one more thing. We're just getting right here. We might end earlier than we have all day this week, all, all week uh, so far. So we're going to be in Exodus 19. God is going to give them the law, but before He gave them the law, 
it was really important that the people prepared themselves to receive this law. So there's three things that took place. And I want to ask you about what they look like today. Three things that took place in Exodus 19. In verse 5, it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. They respond in verse 8 by saying, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So one of the first things you see in their preparedness to receive this word was their willingness to obey. They made a promise before God. You can give the commandment, whatever you say, we're going to do it. We're going to listen and we're going to follow it. You redeemed us, verse 4 and 5 here. You redeemed us and you rescued us. And so we're going to be, we're going to be ready to listen and follow and obey. Why is this important today? Why, why do we need this today? A willingness to obey? That whether we're reading in our own personal study or someone's preaching or teaching, why is this attitude important for us today? A willingness to obey. Ma'am? One doesn't do what one isn't willing to do. Can't even make someone do it, right? Right. I mean, imagine we could make someone get baptized, drag them into the water. <laughs> but then are they really baptized? <laughs> right? See, I, I can make my children do certain things today. Right? I'm bigger than they are. <clears throat> but that's not the same as them willingly and purposely choosing to do so. So what, what helps us with this? Help, help me along the way. I know I'm going to be in the Word of God today. Maybe I'm going to re be reading for myself here. Maybe I'm going to be in a Bible study and the Word of God's going to be open. What helps me get here to have a heart that's willing to obey? Humility. Uh, humility. I'm just thinking of Romans 9 where it says... That doesn't the potter have power over the clay? Mm -hmm. He's the he's he made us, and he certainly has the right, right to expect us to obey him. And we should have that willingness to do that. That's right, because of who he is. And so maybe taking that, what helps a lot is realizing what these words are. These aren't the words of a good Bible class teacher or a preacher. We're listening to the words of God as if we were standing below the mountain themselves, and God were speaking to them. Can you imagine if every time this word was open, we put ourselves in that context? God is speaking to me. I, I don't mean any of, I, I mean God through these words is communicating to us, and I, I am ready to listen. And not just listen, as one of our sisters just said, I have a humble heart. If God's going to say, I need to do something, or stop doing something, that's immediate. I am willing to do what He says. It's really easy when it's, love your neighbor. Pray at all times. We like those. <laughs> Love your enemy. Pray for him. Pray for those who persecute you. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Pray for the kings, emperors, leaders, presidents. Pray for those who are your leaders, and you're not praying for flat tires on the Phoenix Highway in the middle of rush hour <laughs> traffic. No. Yeah. But to willingness to say, if he sins, I'm going to go. Whatever it is. Okay. Next thing you see is a consecration of the heart because in verse 10 and 11 right here in uh, Exodus 19 the Lord also said to Moses go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people a consecration they were to clean themselves and their clothes to be ready why why do you think this was important of cleaning themselves why did they need to, to cleanse themselves before receiving the law It's a symbol of purity. What was that? Same reason we need to be baptized. All right. Well, there's definitely a semblance of, of baptism. Right? That cleansing kind of runs through the Bible story of cleansing from sin. Okay. When we go back to God is holy, right? If you're going to be in God's presence, can we come as we are? 
stained and filthy and full of the world? Or do we need to come as He is into His presence, pure and clean and right? Do you remember when Adam and Eve were without Satan and his influence? God was there in their midst. But as soon as Satan, through his temptation, and Adam and Eve fell, what happened? You're out. Right? God is coming near and He says, if you're going to draw near to hear these words, you need to, have, you need to be cleansed. Alright, what's our parallel with that today? We might point to baptism, but is there another way in which this could apply to us today about a consecration of the heart before we draw near to God to learn? Definitely that that is kind of maybe the, the initiating point there, right? Of being right with Jesus and a right relationship with Him. Good. Is there anything else you can think of? Pray for your heart. Maybe pray for my heart? Yeah. Is there a difference? Huh? Oh, or maybe let me put it this way. Do you remember a story Jesus told? about some different hearts and the Word of God being offered to all sorts of different hearts. But a guy who went out and he had some seed and he went to sow. And some hearts received it just for a moment. And some of it got a little bit deeper, but there were things in the way. And in fact, some started to grow, but then there were thorns that choked it. But there was one heart that was ready and open and prepared and not just received the Word, but then received it with the intention of doing what it said, and it yielded great fruit. Can you see the difference? That Luke 8, or Matthew 13, that parable of the sower, is not about evangelism. Let's go out and sow the seed so people will hear it. That parable takes place every time you and I have the Word of God opened. We're going to be one of those hearts. Either we have a heart that's going to receive it, or we have a heart that's going to be closed, and we're not going to hear what those words says. We need to be a people who is always willing to hear it, and to receive it. And then here's the last one. Ready? Oh. Please be good. There we go. Okay. A respect for God. Verse 12. Right? You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Respect God's boundaries. If I say don't go here, don't go here. If I say don't touch it, don't touch it. Why is this needed today? A respect for God. And for his law. What happens if we don't have a respect for God and we hear the word of God? We're not going to do anything. We're not going to do what it says. We take him for granted. We take him for granted. That definitely mm -hmm. happens a lot today. We're going to take God for granted. Well, we're not doing number two, consecration of the heart. Because right. we're not prepared to be approved. When I have a respect for God, do you remember Jude 4? What says there? When I have respect for God, I have respect for God the way He has revealed Himself to us. It's not a God of my imagination. It's not a Jesus of my invention who likes the things that I like and, and don't like the things I don't like. Respecting God means taking God for as He is, taking His word for what is spoken. And sometimes that's really hard because God is holy. Sometimes when Jordan is not. Respecting God means I respect His word, I respect His example, and I expect His role. And sometimes that means a lot of changes in my life, doesn't it? I'm reading the Word of God and I'm realizing if I'm going to be like Him, I've got to make some major changes in my life. I've got to be willing to submit and surrender to what He is saying at any time, even if those commandments are hard and indicting along the way. You remember the, uh, the movie The Ten Commandments? Charlton Heston? He used to air every Easter. I don't know if it still does on TV. We don't have cable much anymore. But when Charlton Heston was, was filming that movie and he was doing the part of Moses, uh, he said a quote that I thought fits really well. It's a good summary for this. 
So he was in the midst of filming the movie, and this is what he said. He said, you can't walk barefoot down Mount Sinai and be the same person you were when you went up. Isn't that good? When you climb the mountain of God, and you hear the Lord your God, who delivered you out of bondage in Egypt, declare His law, you will not be that same person you were when you went down. That's why this is really important. We are people who come often to that mountain of God to receive His law, to come down to different people, a changed people, a people who are trying to be more like Him. Your thoughts? It, isn't it interesting how, play the symbolism out here, <laughs> repentance for us is like they're consecrating themselves. Yes, it is. Clean yourself up as best as you can by turning away from all this. That's right. And then come to God and He's going to take the rest of the way. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's beautiful imagery. Sir. A side note side from note. this, historically, I find it interesting that if this is the same mountain, God's Word was preserved at the base of that mountain. Yes. One of the main uh, codexes we have today, the Sinaitic text. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, for hundreds of years, hundreds preserved of years. there till we finally found it. It's powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Uh, with the three things you mentioned, um, sometimes I have, or I know people have tried to do those things without love in mind, mm. and then think about Deuteronomy 6, about doing it with all of our... <clears throat> Heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah, God gave it in love, yeah. but He wants us to respond in love. Right. Love is, is the greatest command, and it weaves all of this together. Absolutely so. But He uh, is a wrathful God. <laughs> we, we've got to remember that, too. <laughs> That's a good point to end on. All right, let's, let's end in the word of prayer, and then we'll be concluding. Holy Father, Hallowed is your name. We have come before you this morning at the base of your mountain. We have heard your law. We have seen your holiness. Uh, we have tasted the power of your reverence. We respect you as our king and as our God. We're so thankful for you as our deliverer who has saved us and redeemed us from our slavery to sin. Holy Father, it is our, our longing and desire to know you and to know you through your law. We're so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us a plan and a direction that will lead us and guide us to the best life possible here and to the unimaginable eternal life yet to come. Give us hearts that are humble, wonderful Father, to receive your law, to hear you when you speak through these words, to see you as you are, and to humbly serve you to the best of our ability all the days of our life that you have given to us. Thank you for that powerful moment on that mountaintop. And thank you, gracious Father, for the greatest mountain to come when we climb the hills to the power of Christ and stand victorious with you on Mount Zion. We long for the day when Jesus returns. Help us to live each day ready for that day to come. Praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Thank you. Thank you.